Welcome to the Swamp Flakes Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lobos. I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. We are recording in James and Hannah's living room in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp, Swamp Flicks. Flicks. Spooky edition. <laughs> <laughs> it is October 1st. I am fired up about that, to yeah. be honest. We're recording at the top of spooky season right now. We just posted our recommendations on horror movies you can stream currently that mm. we've all, you know, kind of given the thumbs up to in the past year. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I'll share in the show notes. But more importantly, I was looking at the Britannia Uptown's lineup for October this year. That's yeah. pretty sick. It's fucking insane. Yes. It is the best repertory screening list I've ever seen in the city. Really? With the caveat that we've grown up in the aftermath of the AMC movie palaces completely obliterating the indie scene here. <laughs> but uh, at least since then, I've never seen this kind of like mm-hmm. programming before. And I'm just going to read out the list of movies playing Uptown this month. The Craft, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Psycho, The Wicker Man, Don't Look Now, <gasps> Scream, Bell Book and Candle, Friday the 13th, Halloween, Dracula's Daughter, The Creeping Flesh. The Cassandra Cat, which is the uh, cat with sunglasses. Mm -hmm. I've been wanting to see it forever. Yeah. Uh, The Exorcist, The Shining, Little Shop of Horrors, Theater of Blood, and The Black Cat, which is my favorite of the Universal ones. Oh, I love The Black Cat. What a lineup. Oh, my God. I'm like buzzing right now. Wow, you're you're literally glowing green. so happy. (laughs) I like how there's like a mix of shit from all different realms of horror. Like, yeah. I feel like I should want to see the more obscure stuff, but something about seeing Scream in a theater. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Like the OG Scream. That sounds amazing. And uh, Saw 10 is out right (laughs) now. I'm kind of excited. I'm kind of excited about that. Those are fun theater movies. Those are not for me, but I get it. I've seen like two of those like out of order. Yeah. And they were both just like deeply unappealing. I just saw the poster with the... uh, I guess they're letting mice go into their eyeballs <laughs> or something. It's pretty, pretty gnarly. Well, get Happy in there. Halloween. <laughs> Happy Halloween. Spooky season. Also, Wildwood was on a break in September. Yeah. And I think they are coming back this month. And I don't know if they've released any of their programming yet, but mm-hmm. I am hoping that they have some cool horror movies for October uh, to catch on Thursdays downtown. I'm very excited. Yeah, they were kind of teasing that before we watched um, Desperate Living, but they mm-hmm. didn't like divulge any details. So yeah. who knows? I will say Wildwood is more likely to have like deep cuts. Like there are a few movies on that Britannia Uptown list that I have not seen before. Yeah. But it's not like they're screening like. The Beast from 1975, <laughs> which is the last movie we all watched together that wasn't podcast related. That would be terrifying to see with a full on audience of people <laughs> right. and strangers you didn't know. And on a wide screen. Yeah. The very first image <laughs> of this movie screen. is a horse cock in close up. Right. It's engorged with pleasure. And it just gets worse. Yeah. yeah. And then a <laughs> That's horse. A warning. It was like uncomfortable <laughs> right. to watch Turn it with away you now. guys. I can't imagine watching right. it with strangers. I. We'll say the experience watching it was hilarious because the whole time Brandon was like, I'm so delighted. (laughs) You were so happy. Uh, One of my favorite movies I've seen in a long time, to be honest. And I completely acquitted myself. I played y'all several trailers. I was like, we should watch something spooky. Like, let me show you some horror movie trailers. I do, I do me totally and Hannah saw the trailer. Yeah, we were I like, pl- I blame yes. Brittany and Hannah because <laughs> I wanted to pick something else, but y'all were so gung ho for this film. 
You're like, yes, the beast. That's the one. I'm like, all right. We're like reading all the reviews where it's like right. an erotic masterpiece. Thing. Masterpiece. Yeah, like, cool. Yes. And then just immediately hard horse right. cocks. Like, yeah. Get go. Yeah. I just have never seen like a horse's vulva quivering Throbbing. in anticipation. <laughs> yeah. That was something to watch. A lot of firsts. Yeah. <laughs> So it's kind of a Beauty and the Beast tale Mm -hmm. in its vaguest terms where like this girl is being married into a decrepit household that will fall apart if the Beast doesn't fall in love and marry. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't follow the story of the novel at all. The Beast character is this sort of inbred nobleman who um, is about to lose his like stature and he spends all of his time breeding his horses (laughs) in intense biological sexual detail as the audience is sort of confronted with first Mm -hmm. and then it we're sort of waiting for the wedding to happen like we're waiting for like a cardinal to show up and for most of the runtime it's kind of this like Bunuelian or like waiting for godot style existential comedy where like nothing happens it's just these rich people hanging out on this old estate and the movie's making fun of aristocrats and organized religion Mm -hmm. but it's not quite as like surreal as Boonwell. It's not quite as like funny or off-putting as Waiting for Godot. And then in the third act, basically the uh, the Belle character who comes into this family, instead of being naive and like stumbling into this sexual depravity in the household and like being thrown off and horrified by it, she is totally <laughs> on board. She's like, I found my place in the world. Yes. And uh, <laughs> she can't consummate with the beast because he is a little too preoccupied with his horses. So she has a really long, intense sexual dream about um, things that happened on the grounds prior, uh, where a human woman mated with a wolverine-like beast um, that we then see in the same intense biological detail that we watch the horses made in, where yes. we see the beast's gigantic cock just yeah. coming buckets and Gallons buckets of semen. Of semen. <laughs> Gallons. Yeah, I I was like talking down the the beast cock initially. It was like it was serviceable, but we had just been staring at horse cocks for like half an hour. It was like prepping. So you. I was like, this is come on, this is not a. But it uh it grows. Yeah, it's telescopic. <laughs> yeah, and it it grows to be rather impressive over time. <laughs> it does um kind of get into like bestial pornography. I think like mm-hmm. this is the kind of like yeah. Amazon self-published novel that like makes a lot of money right now that Chuck Tingle style yeah. of erotica. Yeah. Ravage by the Raptor type. Yes. Stuff. It is a ravishment fantasy for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, which yes. I guess the sexual politics of that are not like squeaky clean, but you know, uh, very fun to watch. Uh, very creative. <laughs> yeah. And goes way beyond where it needs to. So yeah, that's not the kind of stuff they're playing at the Britannia Uptown. They're playing <laughs> <No>. The Shining <laughs> and they're playing Scream and uh, some like staples like that. Maybe Wildwood would be brave enough to play the Beast. I wouldn't be surprised, Yeah, honestly. it's a possibility. Some, like, weirdo filmmaker is like, you know what? This is the stuff that New Orleans needs to see. Yeah. And we needed to see it. I yeah. absolutely loved it. That yeah. was a great gothic horror fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, really pushes past the discomfort of the <laughs> zoological sex yeah. into, like, just absurd humor. The fact that it goes on as long as it does just becomes, like, a really weird joke. Yeah. I felt so weird because, like, the, you know, the the animal wieners and <laughs> semen and then also, like, all this very uncomfortable, like, there's a priest that has, like, two little boys with him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's this big kind of spooky 
home and then um and then the humor the little bits that were kind of funny where it's like haha i'm uncomfortable it kind of made me feel the same way that like happiness did when i watched mm, it yeah or the baby that's a good like yeah, horror movie like that where like yeah where it's like this is creepy i'm uncomfortable yeah. but interesting yeah well what else have y'all been watching has anyone gone full spooky season yet because that's all i've been watching is like horror movies yeah, I've been kind of focusing on horror. I watched um, No One Will Save You, which is... Oh. Alien Invasion movie on Hulu. Yeah. Or Hulu. Yeah. yeah. At first, I thought it was... Like, it, I don't know. I'm like, okay, like, this looks kind of spooky. I'm not, like, that big of a sci-fi horror person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I decided to watch it anyway. And it was very, very good. And I hate that, like, I didn't have, like, a really cool sound system for it. Because it's essentially, like a home invasion movie that um the invaders are aliens and they are fucking terrifying and there's like no dialogue for the most part of this movie it's very it's just like silent and like you're relying on sounds and like tone and everything like that and i got totally freaked out watching it with my like piss poor sound quality on my tv and i'm like this would have like scared the piss out of me in a theater but yeah, I fucking loved it. Cool. It was very good. Be meaning to like get a sound bar or mm. something. Like, you know what? Like yeah. step up my sound it. game when it comes to you know watching stuff at home. Yeah, because like sound is such a huge element of movies and it's Especially like if, with something like that. Yeah. And if you don't experience I'm like, am I getting the true experience if I don't have that? <laughs> Do you have like a Roku or something? Yes. Okay, so if you download the Roku app on your phone and plug your headphones into your phone. You get like kind of a surround sound experience with like earbuds. Ooh, cool. Which I've discovered because sometimes my wife goes to bed earlier than me. <laughs> I want to watch something scary. I never thought of doing that. Yeah. Okay. So like that that's definitely worthwhile if you're watching something that's like, you know, soundscape, atmospheric horror kind of stuff, like listening to it in headphones instead of off your TV speakers. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, looking forward to the app and the earphone experience. <laughs> um and then also spooky in its own way but i watched the remake of death of a cheerleader um so the original one starred tori spelling and this remake that was done i think like 2019 lifetime for sure lifetime yeah um no big names whatsoever really really shitty but wildly entertaining so it's essentially about a girl who is in school and there's like a dance group or like a group in the school and they're called the Bobettes, which is so funny. Cause like in Cajun French that, that essentially means like a bunch of beasts, <laughs> like a big uh, Bobette. Yeah. So they call themselves like the Bobettes. And then she's trying out also for the cheerleading team and she doesn't get cheerleader. And there's like a richer, prettier blonde girl who sort of has everything thrown in her lap and she gets extremely jealous and stabs her it's based on a true story um but this one was very it's like cheese ball disney music like disney channel style music that they're cheering to and dancing to and it's all like no name stuff because it's a very cheap lifetime movie it it's a, not as creepy as uh the beast but it, <laughs> it's getting there 
Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I've been really into. I like that you and I did an episode where we watched multiple Lifetime cheerleader thrillers. That was on it, right? Because I feel like we saw the... Didn't we watch the original one on that episode? No, I we know. watched two with Denise Richards as the mom. Yes, we watched... Okay, it was a Denise Richards episode and we watched Tammy and the T-Rex and it just so happens she was in like two cheerleader cheerleader thrillers, movies. But they all seemed exactly the same. Right. <laughs> this would totally fall in line with that. Yeah. And you wanted more. Yeah. Oh, there's <laughs> a lot. Enough. Yeah. Well, Hannah, what have you been watching? So I did watch a spooky movie. Um, I watched uh, Night Tide, which was dr- yeah directed by Kurt Harrington and um, released in 1961. So it stars Dennis Hopper in his first role ever. He plays a sailor, a very young sailor who is on shore in santa monica and he meets this woman named mora in a jazz club and he's just like drawn to her she's very mysterious and he kind of continues seeking her out and they start a relationship she was found by this uh captain on the greek islands as a child and he kind of adopted her and he she works in an amusement park that he runs and she is this like attraction she's a mermaid so she sits in this like mermaid costume and sits in a big tank and people come and pay like a nickel or whatever to come and look at her but she is kind of convinced that she actually is a sea creature like a siren um so dennis hopper is just becomes more and more infatuated with her and is kind of like pulled into her um orbit and he's getting all of these warnings from people on the pier um that men that are involved with her like die in mysterious circumstances and she is kind of like associated with bad luck and she's also being followed and haunted by this mysterious um woman in like this lace black dress who like speaks to her in greek um and it's it's just like very moody, mysterious, like fantasy noir horror where it's it's like the mystery is what is this girl's deal, uh, which I really love. I just love when someone is completely like enraptured with somebody and it's like a really bad idea to continue pursuing them and they, they can't help themselves. Uh, there's some very fun occult um moments there's a fortune teller who reads dennis hopper's um tarot and it's apparently like a a pretty good reading um a very like evocative beautiful like lush black and white film um and dennis hopper is just kind of like a himbo who's a little baffled by all of the like folklore surrounding this woman and like not familiar with occultism at all um and he's like wandering around in a lustful daze but i i really loved it i thought it was like really cool and beautiful and moody um a lot of like pining and sea witch stuff and i love a sea witch you know it kind of sounds like the movie i expected the witch who came from the sea to yeah i was thinking of that film the entire time that i was watching this but that's kind of a rug pull because that one is not what you expected yeah it's also a great film but Yeah. yeah Yeah, they're definitely they they definitely like have a kind of a link together. Uh, yeah, and th- this one was much more like traditional. Like de- def- I feel like the witch that came from the sea is like the 70s, you know, like video nasty extreme version of what 
a part of the heart of this movie is. But yeah, it was, uh, I think it's like an hour and hour and a half. I th- saw it on Tubi. Uh, <laughs> so it's just like, uh, it was like a perfect kiss to the spooky season. Uh, and nice. James, what have you been watching? I don't know. I kind of have soured on films recently. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Wow. James is quitting the pod. No, I'm not quitting the pod. But like the past couple of weeks, I'm sort of like not in the mood to watch any movies. But we recently watched Anchorman. It's <laughs> kind of like a like a feel good, you know. And that goes back to like our college days when that came out. Like that would just be on in people's houses when you came over. Yeah, right? it was yeah. crazy. Like it would just be on. Mm-hmm. Like you went into someone's dorm room. Like they were either watching Anchorman or they were quoting it. And uh, that's kind of where my head's at. Like the last couple weeks, I think, is work has been crazy, and I just want to like watch something that feels comfortable. And Anchorman is definitely that for me. Uh, so watching it again, I was kind of expecting like it wouldn't hold up or something. And it does. It's very funny. And I was like, me and Hannah watched it together. Yeah. And we were like, we were laughing out loud, like throughout the whole thing. Like it, those like Will Ferrell, Judd Apatow films, like this one in particular, but also what's the, the NASCAR one, the Talladega Nights. Is really good. I like Step Brothers a lot. Like those are like kind of like comfort food for me. So watching uh, Anchorman really brought me back. Like made me feel very cozy on the inside. And uh, it's really funny. I don't know. I had a really good time with it. I don't have the patience for like high art right now. So watching something that just kind of fit this like comfort food level for me it, it worked will we ever have like movies like that again like i feel I like know. comedy movies have been like kind of shitty for the past couple of years or like nothing came out that's this, been like an anchorman or a i don't know i think yeah. this year is the year that they're trying to bring it back to theaters though because they had joyride and no hard feelings yeah. and bottoms like this year's actually had more of a theatrical push. i guess right and i was seeing about yeah. no hard feeling and Mm -hmm. like the idea of like a comedy that kind of a whole generation can kind of coalesce i think bottoms is the movie that actually hit that mark i just don't think it's cult has grown enough yet yeah i think even anchorman i saw that in the theater and it did well um and i i remember publicly drinking during that one when i was underage still uh probably but (laughs) right um i think it more hit on dvd where it became like kind of like you were saying you'd go over and it's like eight dudes in fold out chairs, their <laughs> eyes rolling in the back of their head. And they're like quoting like, quoting uh, the right. yeah. I'm in a glass case of emotion with no emotion in their voice. Yeah. Milk was a bad choice. Right. Like, there's so many good lines, but bottoms I think will be that movie that sticks around um, like that for Gen Zers. Cool. Uh, you think it, so? it has that energy to okay. it. I need yeah. to see it. Yeah. I feel like Anchorman came out, around a lot of movies where essentially the film is a series of quotable lines that people like reiterate over and over again like the plot of anchorman is totally whatever which like doesn't matter at all but there are so many funny moments will ferrell is he is just funny he's a funny guy not that he's funny in every single thing that he does but Anytime he's on screen in this movie, but, I laugh. And like Paul Rudd with the yeah. like Sex Panther cologne and like Steve Carell, like his whole character. Can he throw a trident during the yeah. big fight? That's pretty funny. I, I think you need to lay low. I 
think you're wanted for murder. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. There's a lot of funny stuff. Even the sports caster, like, I feel like I didn't Whammy. appreciate. Uh, Whammy. Yeah. Is that David Keckner? <laughs> yeah. Just, he, he has such a, like, distinct kind of sad, like, macho character that was like (laughs) like i didn't really appreciate before and i thought it was much funnier this time um but i like i think of napoleon dynamite too like that's Mm. a little like my experience of that movie was like all of these individual quotable scenes that people kind of (laughs) right and i don't think you know like no hard feelings had like a cohesive plot it doesn't have those same like yeah, Bottoms doesn't really have much of a plot. It's just bits, yeah. which I think is kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, exactly. Are we going to get Bottoms quotes on t-shirts at Spencer's? I mean, you will be too old to get them, but the kids will have that. <laughs> Damn it. You know? Good. Good for them. Worth noting, too, Will Ferrell was in like the most profitable comedy of the year this year. He was in Barbie uh, in a pretty major oh, role. Oh, that's right. I don't think he was anyone's favorite part of Barbie, but you know, he's pretty funny in yeah. it. Also... The three of us went on a corporate-sponsored Anchorman 2 uh, trip to the theater. That's true. That I had no memorable that. moments. I could not tell Anchorman you a single 2 thing Anchorman 2 is very bad from what I remember. <laughs> yeah, I remember being very disappointed, but I'm like, at least it was free. Yeah, yeah, our job paid for it. It was like a <laughs> team-building exercise. Yeah, I remember like I mean, almost falling really? asleep. Wow. But, yeah. <laughs> yes, they rented a out a whole building. theater. Like the day before it came out too. And, I'm and like, a drunk businessman wow. offered to buy everyone cocktails and mine never arrived. Really? I'm still steaming about that. <laughs> I remember <laughs> me and one of the guys we worked with, I'm like, let's get the most expensive glass of scotch on this list. I ordered a gin and soda I'm still waiting for from Canal Place. <laughs> I hate whenever um, companies do shit like that where I'm like, just give me a raise. Like, what am I going to go do? Tap said. someone on the shoulder and be like, mm, I never got here. But it's like free and everyone else got their drinks. Right. right. I didn't get my free drink. <laughs> <laughs> on your deathbed, Brandon. And a man will walk through the door with a gin and soda. Someone better bring me a gin and soda on my deathbed. <laughs> Someone very please get Brandon his goddamn drink. I will. Drink. I can promise you that. <laughs> Put it in your will. Well, I have been watching a lot of stuff because I am fired up, as you can tell. I'll single out the two new movies I saw. Uh, both of them were on Hoopla, which your library mm. will pay for if you have a library card. I saw one from Norway called Good Boy that I think y'all might be interested in. It's a very cheap movie. It's got maybe four characters in it, and it's shot in like maybe three or four locations. But um, it is a black comedy slash thriller about this girl who goes on this Tinder date um, with a mysterious man who seems like he has his life together. It turns out he's a millionaire. He's like inherited all this wealth. And the date goes really well, and they have sex. And she wakes up in the morning in his bed, and his dog wanders into the room. And his dog is a person in a dog suit. <gasps> and like, oh my God. It's one of those like very developed like furry masks that has like a hinged jaw. Uh, but the dog acts like a dog 24 7. Like it breathes like a dog. It eats kibble out of a bowl and oh, he like no. pets it. And anytime Sick. she like mentions that it's a person, <laughs> he's like, it's very important that you treat him like a dog. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. And yes. At first, because he has so many great qualities and because this relationship seems consensual, she's like, I can roll with this one weird thing. Just he has a roommate it. who's got a kink, you know, like I can yeah, g- go along with that to like have the first good Tinder date I've ever had. Like, you know, I, c- I can make it work. And then the second she's alone with the dog for the first time, he's like, you've got to help me. This guy's <laughs> keeping me captive. Uh, oh. You've got to get out of oh here. Oh, my God. Nice. 
And I don't know that the movie has many more surprises after that, but like the tension of how weird that scenario is, is like, that's pretty good. You got to yeah. see the movie just because of the novelty of it. And for a movie that was made with like so few people in like a few different living rooms, like it packs a pretty good punch. Nice. Very, very cool. Uh, you know, the best two black comedies I've seen this year, both out of Norway. It's that one. Yeah. And, uh, sick of myself. Mm-hmm. Like both great. I was just going to say Norway is doing something right. Yeah. And that guy's got a new movie with Nick Cage coming mm-hmm. out too. That I want to see. Um, what about the, the dreams. Yeah. That dream looks really scenario. cool. Yeah. And then just to prove that I don't only watch horror movies with weird beast kink stuff in it, which I've mentioned two in a row now. Uh, <laughs> don't lie to the audience. <laughs> I also watched this movie called The Severing, which is not particularly great, but it is interesting. It's directed by Mark Pellington, who did Arlington Road and The Mothman Prophecies. Love Ooh, Mothman. I love Arlington Road. Yeah. That's a cool movie. So he has a career that goes very long as like a music video director. But he had like two breakout movies in the 90s. And based on those films, you kind of expect him to do like purely commercial filmmaking. And this movie is shot in a warehouse. Like it, it's also a, like very limited locations. And it has no plot. It's just interpretive dancers in this kind of like oily gore makeup writhing their bodies in these like really disturbing contortions. Um, for 70 minutes with this like droning synth soundtrack and some like spare piano twinkles. And then there's like kind of abstract poetry text on the screen. So Sold. not what I would expect <laughs> from this man. Uh, I thought it was kind of like one note because of the music. So drony, like it, you kind of wish that you were listening to nine inch nails or something instead of the soundtrack they're playing, but like not the movie you would expect from that guy. Until you find out that the choreographer he was collaborating with is the person who did Climax. Yeah. When you said that, I immediately thought of, like, all of Climax. And if you like the choreography in Climax, this is, like, a slowed down, spooky version of it instead of, like, a sped up, obliterate your brain version of it, which is in Climax. that has that propulsive beat where, like, people just keep moving their body weird and you can't. Yeah. And that girl starts peeing on the floor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Always think of her. Was she at a Death Grip show when she was <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> she confused about where she is. But uh, yeah, it's not the best movie I've seen all year. For the first like two minutes, I was like, this is amazing art. And then I was like, maybe this director isn't up to making avant-garde cinema by the end of it. Because it's kind of like even keel. Mm. But I don't, I don't know, in a year where like the Outwaters and Skinamarink and Ennis Main were like shaking up the horror mm-hmm. community a little bit. Like it's kind of cool to see someone from the old guard try something avant-garde and dialogue free and like very strange um so that that one's called the severing both of those movies are on hoopla and i also wanted to bring that up because i had a very hard time selecting a movie for today's episode i needed like a hard metric the topic selected was auteurs that dabbled in horror like auteurs that tried horror like once as like an experiment but didn't make their career off of it and my first thought was william freakin (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> i was thinking of the changeling which you know it's kind of like a trashier horror movie for a guy who you know is respected as one of the like new hollywood upstarts and then i remembered like days later like oh yeah he was also famous for the exorcist which is arguably one of like the most beloved horror movies ever made the guardian you mean the guardian yeah. what did i say the, the changeling. changeling the guardian sorry i like really wanted the guardian to work because I yeah. love that movie. Great film. We have to find a way to get yeah. it on here. A Druids episode. Here's yes. the thing, Brandon. William Friedkin is on those like 
this director made one horror film list mm-hmm. for The Exorcist and not for The Guardian. Right. And like Do they even know? when we were talking about picking the topic, you were talking about The Guardian and like how it is wiped from the record yeah. <laughs> of history. <laughs> and this is like another example. That movie's about changelings, right? Like, did I mix that up somehow? No. It's same vibe. It's about a uh, woman who is a druid and she's stealing babies to give to a tree okay. spirit. I guess in a changeling story, the tree would give her a fake baby back. Right. And she would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. She would replace it. So the metric I eventually came up with was on Letterboxd, clicking on a director's name and filtering by the horror genre Mm. and making sure they only had one title in that genre. And everything we picked today was that way. And Mark Pellington would have fit that with the Mothman prophecies until they made the severing. Now he has two movies in that category. Can't do it. Uh, And they're very different from each other. Yeah. Uh, But we did find four movies pretty easily. Yeah. I was dragging my feet picking a good one to fit in the topic, but we're going to talk about famous people who are famous for directing film who made one horror movie. Mm-hmm. They, they dabbled in the genre. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. The hour of the wolf is the hour between night and dawn. It is the hour when most people die, when sleep is deepest, when nightmares are most real. It is the hour when the sleepless are haunted by their deepest fear, when ghosts and demons are most powerful. The hour of the wolf is also the hour when most children are born. So this was my topic, and I I think I was just interested in seeing how these established filmmakers used the tools of horror to tell stories and, like, to see if there were consistencies between like their work and their work in terms of horror. I don't know. I just wanted to see like if there were any interesting relationships. So I picked a film that I've been wanting to watch for a long time called Hour of the Wolf, which was directed by Ingmar Bergman in 1968. It stars Max von Sydow as Johann Borg, who is this famous painter, fictional painter and uh live allman as his wife alma and that's like a very classic like ingmar casting um they're in a lot of his films they're also in shame together which came after this and has some kind of like similar themes so johan is a painter he goes with his wife to um kind of vacation on this remote island and he starts telling her about these horrible visions and kind of specters that are haunting him. Um, and they're, I mean, they're very chilling. I think the the one that stood out to me is like an old woman who wears a hat. And if she, uh, she threatens to take her hat off it, and if she does, her face is removed. Very creepy stuff. So He's also like afraid to go to sleep. He's an insomniac. His mental state is kind of deteriorating. Alma meets this woman on the island who tells her to read her husband's diary. So she does, and she kind of gets insight into these visions he's having of his former lover, uh, Veronica Vogler who he had this affair with and it was this like scandalous thing. And then eventually they're pulled into the social circle of this like aristocratic 
group on the island who live in a castle, we get some like really strange um, dinner party stuff, like kind of Virginia Wolfish, like social horror. It reminded me of Krisha a little bit. And I mean, essentially, we're following Johan's mental state further deteriorating. He's being compelled into these like um, compelled by these demons to indulge his like fantasies and Alma's trying to pull him out of it and is unsuccessful. So I think Ingmar Bergman does have he does explore horror in a lot of his films. He, he has a lot of films about existential horror, about the evil that is undercurrent in humanity, about like the indifference of God, how terrifying it is to have awareness of your own mortality, of suffering. So I think that the themes in Hour of the Wolf are like all over his other work, but he uses kind of classical horror imagery he has ravens like this gothic castle um violence he builds tension very well there's this scene where johan is remembering this encounter he had with this boy on an island and it's in this like really stark contrast black and white and so johan is fishing and the boy is standing right behind him and there's this really chilling uh, like string music and nothing is happening. I mean, this little boy is just standing behind him, but it's like so tense and unsettling and then eventually kind of culminates in violence. So I don't know. I don't think this was the most interesting Bergman thematically, but I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. And I think he was adept at like creating images of horror um, and I don't know. It's just like a really metal movie. Yeah, I I like Bergman when he's at his most metal, and like this and Seventh Seal are like the most badass when it comes to just like gnarly, fucked up, surreal stuff. Like this kind of is one of my favorite Bergmans for me, just on a personal level, because it just is aesthetically what I am into. You know, on my first watch, it wasn't one of my immediate favorites, but it did remind me of my favorite two, which are Persona yeah. and Through a Glass Darkly. Yeah. yeah, I I felt like this was it reminded me a lot of Persona in like the breakdown of personality. Right, because a lot of the dialogue, especially early on, is like the woman and the couple saying like, when two people are together long enough, romantically linked, they mm-hmm. sort of meld personalities and become the same person. Yeah. So like sort of the fear is that as he's losing his mind, not only is she losing him, but she's also going to lose hers along with his because they're linked in this way where they kind of like blend their personalities a little bit. Which does tie into like the real life story. I think what he was in a relationship with, with Liv Ullman. the actress and I, you know, he had his own Island where he like conceived all these films and, it was very reclusive and, uh, you know, their relationship was kind of on the rocks yeah. at this point. So there is like an autobiographical element 
to the film as well. And both Persona and Through a Glass Darkly are both about these like getaways on, if not the same island, like a very similar one. He I think it is lot. the same. Yeah. A lot of like seaside. Yeah. yeah. Thatched roof, kind of like old world mm-hmm. setting. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of The Shining, just of, the, of this place that's supposed to be this, this getaway and like a furtive creative ground that just serves as this place for your like demons to kind of circle around you yeah people just sort of populate out of thin air in this Mm -hmm. like she turns around and the old woman in the hat is there all of a sudden or they're intimately isolated on this island and then all of a sudden there's eight more demons who live in this like gothic castle just over the way that's they you know somehow had no evidence of before and i was reading interviews with bergman where he was talking about the inspiration for this and it seems like he was just suffering from insomnia a lot mm-hmm. and like had kind of like sleep paralysis, demon kind of like hallucinations. It was like, what if these were real people and not things I imagined up? And I, I don't know that I could fully track the early monologue where Max von Sydow was explaining each demon one at a time versus like their human counterpart yeah. later. Like I, I didn't really have that all mapped out, but it felt like they kind of conjured these people out of nowhere mm-hmm. and like gave them life and then were tortured by them. But just thinking about this topic and this movie and like how connected it is to his other stuff, like what makes this one a horror movie, but through a glass darkly, not a horror movie? What makes this a horror movie, but not Persona or the image of death in Seventh Seal? Like that's a horror image to me. It's just like the classification of that, especially with Bergman and with Lynch feels so fuzzy to me. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell like where horror stops and ends with them. It almost makes the whole genre classification thing like a joke. I felt like that with this one and a couple, I mean, and another one we'll talk about later. Yeah. Where I'm like, are the others not horror? But like for some reason, I haven't seen all of Bergman's movies. I've seen like two or three. (laughs) Yeah. And for some reason, this one was more unsettling than the others. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I, I can feel this being more in the horror genre than Persona or Seventh Seal. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. Yeah, I think it has. And those films do, too. But this has a lot of very classical like horror yeah. elements, like monsters and the castle. And like... There's kind of like a cannibalism, like vampirism, like yeah, folklore fairy tale thing. Yeah, but I th- I think that that is that does not make it more horrifying mm-hmm. than like Persona. Like I th- you know Queen of Earth, I kind of see that as a horror movie, and it's like, basically a Persona yeah, remake. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I think I, I to me it is purely like some aesthetic choices Mm -hmm. and a few of the like character choices but that's kind of an arbitrary like line and marketing like personas presented as an art film and if you watch the trailer for this one the trailer's like the hour of the wolf the hour where most babies are born (laughs) scary poster but also like the way the characters are shot and really grotesque like i don't know it's like they're monsters yeah you know what i mean like he seems to know that he's making or attempting to make a kind of horror film, even though like his other stuff does touch on like existential and philosophical horror. If you went into Persona looking for Halloween season programming, you're probably gonna be frustrated by it. Right. This has two sequences, which are pretty unmistakable. Yeah. In the genre, which is mm-hmm. him describing the demons 
out, out of the sketchbook. And then maybe the last like 30 to 40 minutes, which, you know, is a pr- pretty Total significant chunk of the movie, dream. but yeah. like, mm-hmm. yeah, starts pulling taboos out of the hat that are like, not what you expected from the story where like um, Max Foncito is kind of put in drag mm-hmm. and it's this theatricality thing where it's like, he's like putting on a show for the demons who kind of like watch and applaud for their amusement. But also he's wearing like lipstick and eye makeup and like a frilly frock to have sex with his mistress in front mm-hmm. of these demons. And then he's making out with this, not making out, but he's like um, having these sort of flirtatious interactions with this old woman um, the lady in the hat who uh, becomes a sort of like bald genderless creature and like has him like caress her stockinged feet mm-hmm. in a way that feels like a taboo s- sort of like a cross-generational sexual experience in a way that's supposed to be freaky and there's just moments like that like there's a lot of like imagery that is it's the kind of stuff that horror pulls out um, even down to the losing your mind thing like mental illness and insanity is like a horror trope um, in a way that like the genre doesn't really ethically deal with, but like freaks you out. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I can see him playing with the tropes more here, but the more I thought about how it fit into his larger catalog, it did not feel like him stepping out of line in like right. any kind of way. Exactly. He didn't trash up his catalog by doing this. In any it, way. it just like he leaned in more to the stylistic tropes of mm-hmm. horror. Yeah. But it's touching on, the stuff he's always ruminated on in all of his films. He did break the one taboo that we talk about, like mm. most people won't do, um, is that he killed the child killed on screen. Killed that child. Which he is did. a great scene. Yeah, great yeah. scene. What <laughs> an annoying was, kid, though. Yeah, yeah, he was annoying. Yeah. Also, this movie does have, like, I would say four or five great scenes. Like, the one I always come back to is the one about time, about a, how long a minute is. Oh, yeah. God, that's a brilliant scene. Like the way it's framed in like 10 seconds, 20 seconds. And like Liv Ullman is like, you could feel the tension in her character. Like, I just want it to like be over. I think that's a brilliant scene. Um, The scene where they're later on, where they're in the like cottage and it's pitch black and he's lighting the match kind of has a similar vibe and the way it's framed to it's just like a lot of like tension keeps you on the edge of your seat and that's kind of the titular conceit too is like they're staying up late so the demons can't get them and it's specifically that like late night early morning hour where you get kind of like existentially scared mm-hmm. yeah um it reminded me a lot of it comes at night in that way like it's the only horror uh-huh. movie i can cite that's specifically about insomnia and like the weight of the world yeah on your brain because your body can't be busy at that hour because was it the hour of the wolf is when more people are murdered and also like where babies are conceived yeah it's the most deaths and the most births births yeah. it's kind of like uh christmas has a horror connotation in a lot of cultures because it's that hour metaphorically in the larger calendar year so like Around Christmas, the veil between worlds is at its thinnest. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that's been kind of ported over to Halloween a little more in recent years. But like even in Britain right now, they have like traditional ghost stories at Christmas every year mm-hmm. um, that Yuletide tradition, you know? Yeah. And, I, and that's just a universal experience. Like if you're ever up that late and like you're no longer able to keep yourself busy to stop your worries, like they kind of overwhelm you at that hour. So I thought that was very effective too. And it tests your patience a little bit 
like this is definitely a um I don't want to say a daytime watch, but this is like a, a coffee caffeinated watch and not like slamming some beers and watching Dead Alive with your buddies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, Midnight no. or whatever. But, but it, it really was very Lynchian to me and like the creepy external threads and like the lingering dreamlike state in the surrealism, like reading that David Lynch, like this is one of his favorite movies made. Not shocking. Right. Made all the sense. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's giving me those vibes of like, I've stayed up too late. I'm in between the real world and the dream world. And it's kind of hazy. Right. And this totally captures that. Especially that one shot of the demon walking up the wall onto the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> Straight out of a Lynch movie. Yeah. Like I said, there's like, it's a very good movie overall, but there's individual parts that are like just amazing. Yeah. To, and some of the best stuff Bergman has done that I've seen. And that is some like straight up horror imagery of like, you know, like walking up the side of a wall. Yeah. I mean, I was just really impressed with how effective the horror elements were. Like the descriptions of the demons were terrifying. That moment on the rocks was terrifying. I agree that the minute scene is great because I think it's a full like real time minute, which feels like such a short amount of time. But when you take it second by second in a film, it is like interminable. <laughs> it, re- it reminded me of our like slow cinema, yeah. slow cinema episode. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're like a minute can really feel like a long yeah. period of time. Not the only film on this list that plays with that. I yeah. Think. True. Uh, we'll get back to that. Yeah. And when you're kind of steeped in fear and and you just have to get through one minute, but it lasts an eternity. Like the ability to kind of for him to bend time in that way is is pretty incredible. And as dialogue based as it is, I mean, one of his calling cards is people delivering monologue straight to the camera. So you see like Liv Allman like talk yeah. for like minutes on end directly into your eyes, you know. Mm-hmm. On top of that, there are a few images that aren't even horror necessarily that are like very striking. I'm thinking of him um, interacting both with his wife and his mistress where they're talking and it's really in like really intense close up and the camera just whips suddenly to the sun and like blows out the white balance. Yeah. Uh, and it's like really disorienting um, the scene where he kills the child on the rocks and he's yeah. confessing that um, shot with this very intense depth perception where like the water is in stark black and white and feels like it's right on top of you so like the entire screen is just filled with waves it's great like and uh even in the scenes where we're counting the minutes and it's like you know 3 a.m or whatever um max von Sydow just striking matches and watching (laughs) the match burn out kind of like filament in a light bulb yeah like just really beautiful stark black and white photography and even like in the very beginning of the film there's a shot where like Liv Altman is talking and Max Vensado, he like goes to grab a drink in front of her. And like the way he shows the alienation between partners where she's like talking, he's not really listening. And then he kind of comes into the foreground, but they're disconnected. Like just really filmmaking 101 type stuff that like tickled me because I'm like, damn, like this is a fucking master of the art form. And there's some really interesting shots of people approaching too, like in particular the scene where uh, he has this like 
Trist on the beach with his lover. I think it was like a memory mm-hmm. of them. So he's sitting on the rocks and then you see it, the I think that the camera is like very uh, it's telephoto. So the rocks that are far away are kind of compressed and you see this woman's legs and they're tiny, like just approaching from the very top left of the image and then she's walking closer and closer to him but the way that it's composed it's only her legs approaching like growing bigger and bigger and bigger and you never see her like the top of her body her torso or her head until she stoops down but it takes like a minute for her to kind of like weasel her way over and not being able to see her and feeling her coming for so long is it's like it's a tense moment out of nothing like she's walking it's that kind of horror it's like like you were saying with the shining as a reference point like it's stanley kubrick changing the geography of a space in shot reverse shot where like there's a ambiguity and a uh and attention in things not being right. Yeah. Where he like changes the geography of a place to throw you off. It, it, this is like last year in Marion bad horror. Yes. Not like that, a like slasher or is, something. That is how I was feeling during that uh, dinner scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where like it kept cutting so quickly between characters talking at the dinner table in different spatial dimension where like I wasn't sure if that person actually was sitting next to that person, it was moving around so quickly. It was very disorienting. And I thought that was cool. It's like giving you that feeling, like you had said, Hannah, like Krisha or some other movies, like that horror of being at a party and you're talking to this person and then you're talking to the person next to you, but now you're confused on who is where. And that sequence in Mother where the sink is embraced, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like that sort of horror of like not knowing where you are in a party. Right. That that scene really captured that well. And the slow reveal that these are not real people. Like these, these were like conjured out of this guy's brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the more you realize like, oh, those are the people from the sketches. That we never got to see, um, which I think is pretty explicit by the time the old lady takes her hat off and yeah. then her face comes off with it. I mean, I assumed that from the beginning, because when she, Alma, when Liv Woman's character first meets this old woman, she says, like, she says that she's 216 years old. And then she's <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I mean, 76. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, you're a demon. And then James <laughs> pointed out that she had a big hat, hat on. I was yeah. like, all right, well, yeah, this is the freaky lady. But yeah, I really, really liked it. Um, so I think it would have been great if Bergman had made other creaturey horror films. But I'm, I just like dig his. That, whole that's kind of how I felt. I was like, man, I want like a couple more Bergman horror, straight up mm-hmm. horrors, because yeah. they would have been so fucking good. Killer, we warn you, don't let him see the fear in your eyes. 
For this is what he seeks. And this is why he kills. Where are you? Where are you? So the director that I picked is Michael Powell, who I've only seen Black Narcissus. Um, I've not seen the red shoes oh my god so i know how good. many years have been trying to get you to watch right. red shoes I, you've literally i Did have you, your copy the, of the you, red no, shoes you don't have it anymore we oh, have you gave my, it back. we have my copy <laughs> we have your copy years years i know he's i know red shoes is great so good yeah i've never seen it <laughs> I'm gonna i know black narcissist <laughs> is very good because i've seen it but he is a established serious very good filmmaker who dabbled in one horror film well and he did a lot of like he like powell and pressburger did these films like they did red shoes and black narcissus and black narcissus and like a matter of life and death but this is just michael powell which is very exciting wait so they all those other films they teamed up yeah Yeah, this is him going off on a passion project Mm -hmm. so anyway um the film i picked was peeping tom from 1960 which kind of ended his career for a while which is why i picked it because if we're talking about directors that kind of went outside of their genre and did a horror film this is the one i think really like stuck out to me because it kind of like ended his career for a while so watching this movie for the first time it felt like i was watching a foundational text of all the movies that i like like Brian De Palma and like lurid thrillers. And it just felt like it was bridging the gap between Hitchcock and De Palma. And I don't know why it took me so long to see this movie, but this movie is like a masterpiece. And it's crazy that it got Michael Powell essentially canceled for a decade. Yeah, this this was made the same year as Psycho. Mm-hmm. And Psycho was, you know, a beloved classic. This is to me was like on par with Hitchcock. Like, yeah, it yes. blows yeah. my mind. Yeah. And, like I'm like, wait, Hitchcock didn't make this. I think it says something about American critics versus British critics. Yeah, like that. Like Psycho is lauded as a classic almost. Instantly. I like this more than Psycho. I yeah. like this more than Psycho I too. Totally agree. I mean, this is one of the greatest <laughs> films ever made. Yeah. Like full right. stop. But so I, I have a hard time even like talking about it because it just feels like a blind spot. Like, how did I not see this sooner? But um. It's kind of your prototypical slasher and also this kind of meta commentary about film as like the art of watching film as being like a peeping Tom and a lot of interesting stuff in here that um, I I guess audiences weren't ready for in 1960 when it came out. And I've never seen The Red Shoes, so I feel like I'm missing something. And that is an important piece to see in conjunction right. with this because there's a sequence where Maura Shearer, who is the dancer in the red shoes is murdered on camera mm-hmm. by the peeping Tom killer in this. Yeah. And it's kind of like Michael Powell, like assaulting this like past dancer image he's created. Yeah. Uh, it's like him literally like assassinating his own career on screen. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're both shot in that lurid technicolor. The red shoes makes use of technicolor film in a way of, never seen topped by any other feature film ever and this this is like dialing that up to the point where it's like almost trashy how like over the top yeah and oversaturated the colors are yeah i think lurid is a great word 
like that is it's so like it's like bloody and kind of horrifying but i've i've only seen three of their films and it's all i think it's all been in the past year black narcissus and the red shoes both also have like some horror elements or at least like like surrealist fear especially black narcissus but those films like Red Shoes, five stars, incredible. Black Narcissus, I, there was like something that didn't quite work for me all the way. And A Matter of Life and Death, it was the same thing. So but so I love their style, but only one of their other films has like totally gotten me there. So I was wondering how I'd feel about Peeping Tom. And it's just like the best of their visual aesthetic combined with like that true like horror Hitchcock De Palma stuff. And I feel like De Palma has to be indebted to this movie. Like, yeah, because he uses the same kind of lurid color scape that, that this movie Mm -hmm. does. Like it was so clearly an ancestor. Yeah. He has a lot of peeping Toms in his movies. Yeah. Right. And voyeurism. voyeurism, yeah. Yeah. This does remind me of, um, I watched, uh, talk with quentin tarantino where he's talking about how like he prefers de palma to hitchcock because hitchcock like just couldn't quite go there in a way that de palma could anyway spoken like a true 80s video store nerd (laughs) yeah yeah, absolutely but i i agree with like i preferred de palma too because that's i cannot take any more hitchcock slander we're cutting this off now no no (laughs) it's not hitchcock slander i prefer it to my aesthetic but I gotcha. this feel this movie really feels like the bridge between the like hitchcock style and the de palma mm-hmm. style like how do we go from like the tools of hitchcock to a modern sensibility of the lurid uh the really sensational you know depraved kind of stuff and mm-hmm. like this movie to me is like the masterpiece of how do you bridge those two those two filmmakers it's it's certainly more body double than psycho is yes yeah and psycho did have its own controversies i I made it sound like every american critic was on board psycho but like that movie was considered vulgar because it showed the first flushing toilet in a hollywood <laughs> studio picture and there are Thank scenes God. of like adultery in a hotel room and you know the shower stabbing has been a particular image that has been recreated and retold so many times from Brian De Palma to anyone you could name in the decades mm-hmm. since. But it does feel like Peeping Tom went even further at the exact same time. Uh, we haven't really talked about the premise very much yet, but it's yeah. it's this um, cameraman who basically is just a focus puller on set. He's like mm-hmm. five or six camera operators down the list, like below the assistant director. But he wants to be a director. Yes, he has, he has aspirations of his own. Um, he's also pulling from a larger tradition uh, I think his vocal performance and his demeanor in particular sounds very much like Peter Laurie, who was also a slasher prototype in M, the Fritz Lang film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but his personal project where he's making a movie in his spare time while he's not working on set is he has a little 16 millimeter or eight millimeter camera that he carries around in his jacket. The original GoPro. <laughs> it is essentially making a snuff film. A snuff film. And the way he's rigged it up as a weapon is actually very similar to the origins of cameras. Um, one of the first movie camera types was called a chronophotographic gun. Have you ever seen it before? It's like a rifle that has like a film reel uh, strapped to it and uh, it shoots like 
rapid successions of images when you pull the trigger. Never saw that. Nice. And he's kind of Sounds rigged cool. this up to be a penetrative version of that, where mm. the eight millimeter camera is mounted to a tripod. Uh, he lifts one of the legs on the tripod, basically like getting an erection on screen, uh, pulls the protective end off of it, and it's a sharp object that he stabs women with. And uh, he's also mounted a light reflector over it, which has a function, like filmmaking, it's actually yeah. helping him light the scene, but it's also um, showing the women their own faces mm-hmm. as they're being murdered, which amplifies their fear on camera. And that's exactly what he's trying to film, is like the fear at the moment of death as he stabs these women. So it's not a slasher in the traditional sense where like you don't know who the killer is. It's not that Jalo style. From the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's more the like psychosexual. I mean, by the time you meet Norman Bates, you know he's gonna do something untoward in Psycho. You know, it's it's like that era of proto slashers where like you know who the killer is. But um, what's really beautiful about it is it's both a celebration of filmmaking and it's very fetishistic about the analog film equipment that he uses to kill these women Mm -hmm. and then like immediately goes back to his basement to process the film. And then we watch him watch his murders. There's a lot of that watching like him getting off, watching someone watch him. Yeah. He starts bringing women down to the basement to watch his like snuff film that he's like putting together, which, you know, it's kind of indicting the viewer too. And it reminded me kind of like funny games or something where it's like, like you're you're the, all a part of it. You're a part of it. Like you're watching me film these people getting murdered and you're getting off on it. Yeah. And you're kind of the problem. But I could also see it pissing off critics at the time, especially stuffy British people. Uh, right. Being like, why is this pervert making me watch his like fake snuff footage? And then I have to watch his like in-film avatar, watch my in-film avatar, yeah. watch the fake snuff footage. I thought about that too. Cause like when I was watching this, it sort of feels like he's your buddy because there's this intimacy with him, like as a viewer. And I'm like, I kind of had pity for him. I actually yeah. did have a lot of pity for him. And I'm like, Oh man, he has daddy issues. And he just can't figure out how to, like, properly channel them. I guess this is his thing. But I could see, like, you know, really uptight people watching that and being like, oh, this feels even more perverse that you're trying to, like, have me relate to this guy in somehow. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't know. Like, I feel like it was purposely, like, trying to get the viewer to, like, have some empathy for him and trying to understand why the why but, behind what well, he's doing this horrible shit. Yeah, that, it felt that's bizarre. That's why it's, like so modern to me it's like i actually it's like sympathizing with the villain like he's like not an anti-hero like i don't but but it offers a little bit of salvation with this downstairs character who might be a love interest Mm -hmm. yeah like it offers him like kind of a life raft where it's like you could be normal and stop this uh if you could just like assimilate to like normal right. society and he can't do it. Like, yeah. He's just so used to looking and, uh, at life yeah. through window panes and through movie screens. And anytime he tries to like have like whenever they're walking in the street mm-hmm. and he has that normal like, Oh, somebody wants to like hang out with me. And he sees those people making out he immediately grabs <laughs> his chest and he's like, uh. I want to feel him. <laughs> I'm like, oh, here yeah. he comes. <laughs> yeah. I found myself like knowing that he is murdering people still wanting him to finish the movie so yes. i could see it and then i was <laughs> like well i'm a i'm a sick fuck and i th- <laughs> i th- i think it was a great not that it's an indictment but i think it is like critiquing like making art out of harm you know because he is it reminded me of 
um, blowout in the idea of like using real horror or recreating situations to create real horror to make like successful art about it. And like, so he is actually murdering these women and trying to get like the deepest, like most authentic expressions of fear. And then there's this connection with his father like doing that same thing for science you know and everybody talks about how brilliant of a scientist his father is but his father was contributing to science but also just like a freak in his own right you know so there's this selfishness that is driving these men to make something while harming other people and they're like lifted up for it. Like it made me think of all of these auteur directors that put actresses in horrible situations because it creates like an authentic reaction. And you watch a sort of typical British production at the time. He's, he's working on a film called the walls are closing Mm -hmm. in, which is a very funny joke, but like you're watching this director abuse his actresses in a very similar way Mm -hmm. while making hack art. (laughs) <laughs> like you know the the true artist is the guy who like actually indulges in that stuff um in his free time uh but you know actually has a body count behind uh what he's doing and is you know causing real world harm um and the worst this stuffy mainstream director is doing is like ruining a few actors days right <laughs> um you mentioned blowout we mentioned body double earlier I'd say Dressed to Kill is another De Palma that's probably Mm -hmm. influenced by this very directly. I think one of the reasons that Hitchcock is the main source that's cited for De Palma's influences is because Hitchcock was readily available and never like shamed out of public discourse the way that Michael Powell was for making this. And Martin Scorsese is the one that like really championed this and brought it back from like the brink of extinction. Mm -hmm. So like... By the time all of the De Palma discourse ran its course, then Martin Scorsese had to kind of pull like like pull movies out of obscurity like this. So it was just like out of conversation by the time those like narratives were being solidified. I think it's very clearly linked to the De Palma stuff. Yeah. And very clearly like one of the best movies ever. I, I mean, I was looking back at when I wrote about this was in 2015 and it was one of the first five star reviews I wrote for Swamp Flicks, which was like, this possession mm. paris is burning maybe a couple other titles it was <laughs> very early movies. on yeah they're fantastic mm-hmm. i didn't necessarily enjoy revisiting my writing from 2015 <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh everything i felt about it still felt just as vivid on rewatch you mm. know nice and this is what i was looking for from this topic was like a director who is known for a sort of hoitier toitier art just mm-hmm. kind of like bringing themselves down to like a trash impulse based filmmaking level. Everyone but needs do, to do it more but often. But I do feel like that's kind of what we're doing as a podcast. It's like it's the high and the low art. It's right. like that's why I love this movie. It's we like need the balance. Yeah, it's like bringing the trash up to high art. I would say our favorites are usually the high art aesthetics applied to low art premises. Yeah. Like yeah. whenever something is like very slickly, beautifully made, but is sort of indulging in like base id, I think that's like our sweet spot. I think I think we can agree to that. Yeah. 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 This is one of the best to ever do that. Yeah. I think out of all of the directors on this list, I think it is such a shame that he did not make more films. Like it is insane to me. Like this is equivalent to any of the other like 
voyeur suspense horror films from that time like it kills me that he didn't ha- he didn't make more well, it I'm- seems like bergman had more clout to where he could like dabble it's kind of hard to imagine bergman doing anything that would have had critics like abandon him right you know? yeah. yeah yeah like hour of the wolf i don't think is pushing any boundaries that he didn't push in other ways like this this is a shocking movie it is truly horror like the last moment where you finally see the apparatus and how it shows like distorts the face of the women and like i was breathless for the last 15 minutes of this movie like i can see why it it would be trashed but i don't also think it should have been there's something so strange watching it like when it goes into that kind of quadrant um you know we're mm-hmm. looking at it through yeah the his viewfinder. viewfinder has like a target uh crosshair yeah. yeah like if you have a camera you know it breaks it up into the four quadrants or whatever but that felt dirtier than watching it like in a normal film way like it felt like a snuff film and that is prototypical to watching like handheld camera stuff or watching like we're going to talk about Found footage, found footage mm-hmm. stuff. Like it there, felt like a little bit a of found footage in this that. too, because we're watching like his childhood and home movies. Yeah, that um, was the creepiest part of this for me. It was like him as a kid sleeping and his dad just watching him, yeah. throwing lizards on him and shit. Mm-hmm. And how many like first person point of view kill scenes do you think were already out in the ether in 1960? Like it's probably yeah. pretty early for that yeah. style of filmmaking. Yeah. yeah, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. Like, and it is sickly. In a way, like it, the, there are these like dingy streets and and like um, photography studios and the and the sound stages are gorgeous. There's a scene in the in his dark room with the mother of his love interest that's just like masterfully. It's my favorite shot. scene. Yeah, where she calls him out, where she's like, "I sense your insanity." Oh <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> she's on to you. Which the line about like how she pays attention to what's happening above her. She's like judging him based on his footsteps because yeah. she can't see his face. Yeah, yeah she like, says, so I visit this room every night because she's blind, but she can hear everything oh, that's yeah. going on. Good that stuff. heightened sense. Yeah. And that whole like living situation. Like, could you imagine like renting and sharing restrooms with someone who could potentially be a serial killer? <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed to admit that as beautiful as this movie is, I, I did revisit it on Tubi. <laughs> it still looked great on that platform. It looked fabulous yeah. on Tubi. But like... I'm just mentioning that to say that although Martin Scorsese had to rescue this from obscurity, it's been pretty well rescued. Like it is widely available to the point where you can watch it on an ad-based platform right now. Is this in the Criterion Collection? It, it's on and off on the channel for sure. Yeah, um, be a cool like DVD to own. Yeah, totally. I'm sure you could see Uncle Marty talking up his praises on the extras on that as well. Uh, but the next movie we're talking about has not fully been rescued because it goes in and out of distribution like every year. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's available to rent and sometimes you have to have Hana bring a bootleg <laughs> DVD over to your living room to watch Grab it. Grab it while you can. <laughs> um, so my selection is Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark from 1987. And this is one of those films that have just like flown. It's flown under the radar since release. So when it was released, um, it was re- released around the same... Well, it was actually released at the same time as The Lost Boys. And oh. there was like a sh- like literally no marketing done for Near Dark because it was more of an independent film. And this is before like independent films were cool. So it was like super difficult for it to get 
the attention it needed and the distribution company that put it out was like on the verge of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So everything was working against it. So it, it was in theaters for like two weeks. Um, then it went to VHS and it didn't even have like a long run on VHS and that stopped. The copy that I have, I got it when I was in high school. So it was like early 2000s, just randomly showed up at Walmart. And I was like, this looks kind of dope. Grabbed it. And then it fucking went away for like, another like decade before it came back again walmart dvd bins is true cinephilia you never know what you can find <laughs> we, used to dollars, buy, dude. we used to buy so much like exploitation yeah. schlock in yeah. those dvd bins and they're always i so love good. when they had that like three pack uh, you know you get oh, like gory those, movies for five bucks best. yeah that's Damn. how i got funhouse on dvd um but with Catherine bigelow i'm not like the only other movie I really saw from her that I liked was like Blue Steel. Um, but she does like what you know, about Hurt- Strange Days? Strange Days is Strange so Days. Good. You're right. Strange Days is pretty good. Yeah. Um, the Hurt Locker is a big one for her, and Zero Dark Thirty. Like, Those are like the prestige era ones. She's Point Break is another classic. And Point Break, right? So she's kind of more of this like action thriller type director. And I think before she did, this is her first solo director credit like everything else she co-directed until she got to this movie and the one right before it was the reckless of willem dafoe it's pretty good which is a pretty good movie right it's it's fine like a lot of sexual leering at willem dafoe's <laughs> body in that movie yeah it's which fun to watch. is like mm-hmm. i'm not buying into right. this i like it yeah I, weirdly that <laughs> works for me he's like a lizard in leather in that yeah, movie. yeah like there it. are just some guys <laughs> where i'm nervous. like you're so weird and i'm into it he felt like a cigarette like a virginia yeah, slim that's in that right movie. she <laughs> eye fucks him in that movie like she's the peeping tom uh, guy so drink it in everyone <laughs> she also uh co-wrote this movie so this has a pr- this is pretty much like a passion project for her um and what she did was kind of took a movie about vampires and and big thing this is known for is the word vampires never said in this movie but we kind of understand that that's what it is maybe um but she wanted to like basically rewrite the lore and go like okay like i don't want this to be this gothic vampire film um because she did take inspiration from bram stoker's dracula but she's like i don't want this to be gothic full of religious relics and things like that like i want to play off a particular condition of vampirism which is um the skin condition of going into the sun yeah and that being a symptom of this and that's why like the biggest thing that you have other than the the group of vampires drinking blood it's the sun is their enemy there's really not a lot of let me like show off my vampire powers and things like that like none of that really exists in this movie which is really really cool and it's like it doesn't feel like a vampire movie even though it's it's categorizes that it feels more about like a like an addiction or a disease and like blood being that perfect drug um not necessarily like vampirism and this mythical lore and then also like the setting of this too like i kept like trying to think like man it sucks at like the lost boys is one of my favorite movies this is one of my favorite movies too that like the Lost Boys kind of trumped it, um, as far as the public saw it, and I'm like, well, there's something that that they're both that's a similarity, but this is so different. The, than Lost, the Lost Boys, Boys is a lot more fun, right? Uh, where like Bill Paxton is having fun in this movie, but everyone else is miserable, <laughs> right? But there's something about it though, like it's not trying to be that type of movie. I don't think. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's more. Somber. It's a somber, and it's t- the telling of a story, and in this really cool like western style. 
And the cool thing, too, I'm glad you brought up, like, Bill Paxton. Like, when I think of Bill Paxton, I always think of, like, this as being probably, like, his best movie for me. This and Boxing Helena is when he, like, really goes Shit. off the rails. Never is like a himbo, like, freak show in both of those movies. And what I didn't really realize is Catherine Bigelow liked the camaraderie that, like, Bill Paxton and Lance Henriksen and Jeanette... Um, can't remember her last name but she played uh diamondback in the movie the three of them were in aliens together um which is a james cameron film and Catherine bigelow was with him for right. a while so she liked that camaraderie they had and she's like you know when you go through a movie together it's like going through war together and they have something that you can't like create it's so natural and she's like i want that on the set of this movie so the fact that they all got to be in this together and also like which is another like like there's like this trio well what do you call a group of four quadrangle they're a quad right <laughs> they're a quad um so bill paxton is also in a he was in a band called martini ranch and he had a song called reach <laughs> and the music video was directed by james cameron and all of them including Catherine bigelow are in that wow. music video yeah, yeah. and it's like a western so like there's just something this beautiful energy that that group of four had like throughout this movie that translated into other shit which i thought was so freaking cool but yes like i love this movie because it feels more of just like a storytelling like there's really no main focus on a particular character and a particular villain it's like watching um caleb who's the main character like go through this process of um getting infected right with the vampiric germ um or whatever the hell you want to call it he gets bitten by um may so may is the there's two female characters in the movie that are really main but may is very feminine she has this like relation with him where you could tell like, she's into him um and there's a romance there but it's sort of i didn't feel like that was like the main subject of this movie was the romance between like may and caleb i i kind of looked at it more as like caleb's journey from going to being sort of like a little a little shit cowboy to like going through this insane experience having to make choices um and dealing with going into like a different lifestyle and then trying to get out of it yeah. with the help of his like family that's kind of why i like it a lot yeah i to i totally saw that and I saw this movie for the first time this year and it was like three months ago. Uh -huh. So I've, I saw it pretty recently twice and that was, it was like his kind of coming of age, yeah. like going from being kind of a naive teenager, you know, he falls in love with this girl. She's involved in this kind of like toxic crowd that are involved. And I think it is like, can be a metaphor for drugs or like yeah. that, lifestyle and he like thinks that he can't come back from it and he's also like tied into it because he loves this girl she also feels like she's tied into it and then right he is like they feel stuck yeah and then his father like pulls him out of it and is able he's able to like kind of move on from it and then like saves his girl from yeah. it too i'm glad you said the drug thing because like especially when he starts turning and he's got like the sweats because he hasn't fed yeah there's this assumption that the public's like looking at him like this guy's on like meth or something like that so that's kind of like right in that particular scene where he's at the train station like the idea of like blood being a drug is like super apparent 
I actually thought the romance and the sex was pretty significant in the story. Really? Well, my very favorite sequence is the opening where this man is sort of like hunting a sexual partner. Yeah. He sees this like naive girl on the side of the road. <laughs> and then she ice cream. flips the gender dynamic of that hunt um, yeah. halfway into the exchange where she bites him yeah. and transforms him into a vampire. And that's a really beautifully sequence and I think plays into the only other 80s vampire movie I would put in the same category, which is mm-hmm. Tony Scott's The Hunger, which is another personal oh, yeah. favorite. Yeah. And I think both of those movies, whether intentionally or not, are sort of processing AIDS epidemic yeah. stuff. And there's a lot of taboo in this movie about blood exchange. Um, Caleb becomes very dependent on this new sexual partner to feed him her blood and is just like sucking off of her wrist. And she kind of gets off on it too. Yeah. yeah. It's sexual. He's very vulnerable and yeah, very mutually dependent on her. Yeah. And then later he's cured more or less by his father through a blood transfusion Mm -hmm. there's something about the horror and like the taboo of like sharing blood in the aids context that like very directly ties this into like sex and romance for me okay especially this like roving band of like outsider freaks like once you get sort of diagnosed and like that is like part of your identity then you're like no one wants to touch you. You have to live in these motels at the yeah. edge of town and like become this like nomad until you eventually die. I think I just automatically thought of drugs because like everyone I know that's like sort of gone hardcore into like fentanyl or something like that. Yeah. It's like it's like right. It's like you leave with a group of people and you're like, who are those people? I I thought the movie was very vague with its metaphors. Maybe like, so. It Maybe. could be about drugs. Yeah. It could be about falling into the wrong crowd. It could be about sex. It could be about AIDS. Or vampires. I mean, it's really or about vampires. <laughs> right. Like it's pretty much about anything you want it to be for you know better or worse. But I think all of those things are related. It's like yeah. you yeah. Uh, you move in a direction because you're pulled by something uh-huh. and then you think like you maybe get to a place that you don't want to be but you feel like because of the choices i've made this is who i am now yeah. and and there's no coming back from it and like the first time i saw it i felt like there was a little bit of maybe like shaming in the type of life like of an alternative lifestyle uh-huh. which i didn't care for but the second time i thought of it more as like somebody who feels like this is my life now and i can't i can't do anything else and you have people that love you that come and like whatever you have done doesn't define who you are or the choices that you can make and we can like help like we can be a support system for you Mm -hmm. but but i think that like chronic sexually transmitted diseases like drugs being a social pariah like those are kind of tied into like being labeled as a deviant or an outsider where like you don't feel like you have anywhere you can go and it's not insignificant that one of the main ways that AIDS spread was through needle drugs right uh you know yeah and there is a scene where caleb is trying to get back home and he's in a train station and a cop basically shines yeah. a light in his eyes like what are you on right, right now? <laughs> yeah. like, you wouldn't believe me if i told you um so yeah these things are not exclusive from each other yeah true but i think whatever the allegory is and maybe it's not entirely clear like mm-hmm. the real selling point of the movie is the same thing as the hunger where it's this high style like music video aesthetics where she's playing with like smoke machines and backlit 
silhouettes. You got Tangerine Dream bumping in the background. And like flashing <laughs> cool. lightning strobe lights. Like she plays with that strobe light effect. Yeah. And like dry lightning out in like the Western desert so much in this. And it looks cool every single time. Yeah. And like I have this like, <laughs> I guess it's fucking rare, but this like two disc DVD. And there's like a really cool interview with her and like all the stuff that they had to deal with and like it was freezing cold apparently where every time like may was talking like you know those beautiful scenes that are like backlit in the desert at night and it's like you could just see like the outline of her mouth and caleb's mouth they were so like the their breath was hot you could see like the steam from it so they would have to suck on ice cubes before they would talk and i'm just like holy shit like all that effort like it made me think of what you were saying, right? Like all the effort you, that she put into like making this look so visually pleasing with this like beautiful music video sort of aesthetic is insane. Like to make all of this so perfect. And she never really lost that when she became more of a commercial director. Like, yeah, the reason she won the Oscar for the Hurt Locker and whatever else, like she continued to have a very slick. I hate to say it, but they did work very closely together, like James Cameron style, like maximalist visual language to her yeah i think she started as a painter before she was a director and you kind of see that in her work um i don't think that she was ever as interesting later on as she was like around this time up until blue steel like that that really is like her best run in my eyes yeah fuck blue steel is so good i guess strange days was after that that's a really good movie too yeah but she's really good with these like sort of cat and mouse themes and movies like this had it a little bit Right, where there's something always approaching, um, be it a van of crazy vampires or, you know, like in the Hurt Locker. Yeah, and I like the the vulnerability of this macho cowboy character being like the lost kitten who's being like abducted by these people. He comes off kind of strong in the beginning where he's like almost predatory. He is predatory towards her. Like, I'm going to find you even though she was like also hunting him yeah um but like the scene where he like puts the keys in his like shirt and he's like you gotta kiss me before i bring you home i'm like what a douche but i'm like he got learned up real fast you know by the end of this changed man i mean that sequence and the sequence where bill paxton is trying to teach him out of a hunt in the local like pool hall where they energy in there is similar to yours today what really (laughs) when you were coming in and you were like like, fired up yeah (laughs) i did not murder anyone today for sport (laughs) I should make that very clear. Yeah, but yeah, that that is a showcase for Bill Paxton. That is like yeah. Bill Paxtoniest. Joshua John Miller is the younger kid who was turned mm-hmm. vampires. Oh a child. yeah, I forgot to talk about him. He's very good in this. Our as teen well. witch brother, very scary, yeah. scary boy. He was so he was so good in this because he's like the oldest out of all of them, right? Like he turned Diamondback, Diamondback turned Jesse, right? And he's sort of like. I don't know, like, in I kind of saw him as, like, the leader of this pack, and the way that he, like, delivers all his lines, just like a, like, he has that old soul in the way that he talks. He seems like he had that Drew Barrymore-style upbringing. Uh, his yeah. mom was in Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. She was a Playboy Playmate ah. that got famous in a Russ Meyer movie. So it seems like he probably had early access to drugs and alcohol when he was, like, a preteen in a way that, like, gave him those, like, weird sunken (laughs) eyes a little too early in his life. Uh, Because even in Teen Witch, he has that weird energy, too. Yeah. He's just covered in chocolate the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. He's disgusting in that movie. Yeah. And now he's an adult gay man who writes horror movies with his husband, which is pretty fantastic. Uh, I don't know. This is, like, a classic 80s movie. It's kind of crazy how well it's been 
exalted within the horror community and it's like considered a great film pretty universally and yet still has distribution problems all these decades later. Crazy. Yeah, I don't understand why this is not streaming on every service every year. But every now and then it pops up on like Shutter for a month or Criterion Channel for a month. I was going to say it was like streaming somewhere like like last year and I was like holy crap. Yeah. How did this happen? So The Devils knows? has a similar problem as well yeah. where that one goes in and out. Strange Days I we watched it because I happened to find yeah. it at a thrift store. Like it, that one's hard to get your hands on too. Strange. Well, we've been talking about pretty famous directors with lots of accolades this whole episode. I'm going to bring up someone who's maybe less accomplished than Ingmar Bergman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe. it depends on who's doing the metrics. Yeah, debatable. I picked a film by Bobcat Goldthwait. Who we recently <laughs> a household name. Talked about. talked about. Yeah, we talked about um, World's Greatest Dad, which I think is probably his most popular movie. Yeah. From what I can tell. I think so, yeah. What he is famous for, besides being a stand-up comedian decades before he was a director, but what he is famous for as a director is these very uncomfortable comedies. Uh, in World's Greatest Dad, Robin Williams fakes his son's suicide note to make him seem like a better person than he was and like profits off his son's tragedy in... God Bless America, which I have not seen. That's like about a couple of people who go on a rampage, like fixing society's ills with like automatic mm-hmm. weapons. I do remember the uh, marketing for that film. Yeah. I've actually been like afraid to watch a Bobcat Goldthwait movies. Uh, the other one that I know about is Sleeping Dogs Lie, which this couple is doing fairly well until the guy founds out that his girlfriend filleted a dog and oh. can't move past that. I, I mean, mean, I couldn't. I mean, yeah, that's a yeah. tough one. That's that's know? a deal breaker. But like, why would you write that? And I guess that's right. like kind of my whole <laughs> thing with Bobcat in general is like, I don't want to watch his movies generally. Like, yeah, I don't want to engage with <laughs> right. the things he has written because uh, it's like very contrived, upsetting scenarios for reasons I can't right quite wrap my mind around. That is reminiscent of a goat named Sylvia. Oh, I love that play. Yeah, but it's just just like a grosser version of that. They probably came out around the same time, to be honest. No, no, I like to engage with Bobcat. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah, I I don't know. Like, it's getting into the dark subconscious. It's like teetering between that and like edgelord humor. It's 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 a thin line. For sure. And I was kind of thinking that his one foray into horror would be that. Like it would be yeah. him going into like ultra violence, these really upsetting scenarios. Uh, his one horror movie was his last film he directed. It was ten years ago, mm-hmm. called Willow Creek, and it is pretty strictly a Blair Witch knockoff in a way that a lot of found footage horror movies made in the wake of Blair Witch were. And this is a fairly late one. Like twenty thirteen is like a long time after Blair mm-hmm. Witch. In Willow Creek, a couple go into the Northwest wilderness to go to the footage site of where Bigfoot was filmed in the 1960s. And the opening part of the movie is this couple trying to film this documentary about Bigfoot culture and all these people who believe in that footage and believe it was real. And like the sort of microeconomy that is built up around the legend of that footage being filmed on the, the camping Big site. Bigfoot burger. Bigfoot burger. Bigfoot yeah. bread. That burger looked awesome, fun. by yeah, the way. Yeah. yeah. Bigfoot. <laughs> and um, the second half is when it goes into Blair Witch territory where they actually go to the campsite and they are tormented by the Bigfoot. In a way that we are never shown on camera, it's all them being like disturbed by weird sounds. Um, a lot of the violence happens off camera. 
And we can definitely get into the filmmaking aspects sure. of that second half. I want to talk about the first half a little bit in that I think this is like the opposite of what I think about Bobcat Goldthwait in general, where I think of him as kind of a cruel auteur. Like if he has any tells as a director, it's this kind of like vicious black comedy. Uh-huh. And he went into this community and filmed real people talking about Bigfoot in ways that they actually believe. And he basically told these people they were in a documentary about Bigfoot. So like the guy singing the song about the yeah. Bigfoot footage, the Bigfoot burger joint, the woman who like operates the rest area, like mm-hmm. tourist site who like gives her a little interview about Bigfoot. These are all real people who actually exist within this little micro economy. Yeah. And reading about the inspiration of the film, I think he went out there wanting to film this sort of like waiting for Guffman comedy about how silly these people are. But I think Bobcat Goldthwait actually believes in Bigfoot <laughs> a little bit what? and didn't want to like make fun of that. I think, I think the thing is, is like it's sincere. Right. Like he's interviewing these people and they sincerely believe what they're saying. And that's like, I don't know, energizing. Like when you see a a group of people that actually believe in the mythology, I don't think they actually believe that like Bigfoot exists, but it's just like they believe in the mythology of Bigfoot. That's very like cool. It gives it some authenticity too. At first, you're like, man, these are like really good actors for people you've never seen on screen before. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, wait, no, they're just talking. They got passion. Yeah. I don't know. It kind of bothers me when people. Really? No, I don't know. It just bothers me when people like film people on false pretenses. Oh, like what I'll give you know, no, like it's not false pretenses. I think it is though. if you're telling someone that you're making a documentary about Bigfoot but you're actually especially if the the intention was to make like a comedy about But I, people, I think you know, Bobcat believes in the mythology of Bigfoot. I've heard him say that Bigfoot the, itself. I, I was listening to like podcasts where he was talking about the making of this. He was talking about the actual like Bigfoot image from that original footage and how most gorilla style costumes at that time did not have that kind of musculature mm-hmm. and how he does not believe that was a person in a suit and that was something else. And like, that's like an actual belief he has. And I don't know that he would have made a movie making fun of those people. Mm-hmm. And like the way this eventually turns out is that he's like making fun of the opportunists who come into the town to mock and exploit them. Yeah. Man. I don't know. I I just think in that case he could have told I mean, right. I get that it would have changed the performance, but it's like if that's your intention, just be honest. That's unethical what you're doing. documentary film. Yeah, film right. For sure. Yeah. I didn't know all this stuff about this Bobcat guy. <laughs> this so, Bobcat fellow. If that is his real name. <laughs> right. So if that's even his real name. But like, right, like I, the I came into this thinking the intent was making some money off of like making a found footage horror movie about Bigfoot. I did fucking not know that like these were like not paid actors. So yeah, like holy shit, dude! Like if you're being like, hey, I'm gonna make this like found footage horror movie about Bigfoot. You guys want to be involved in the beginning of it? Cool. And I would say like. Closer to when they actually go to the site, there are a mm-hmm. few performances from those people where okay. they're being sort of involved in the narrative. And you can tell they're not great actors when they're like pretending. Uh, there's the guy who tells a story about his dog being killed by Bigfoot mm-hmm. that oh, feels yeah. like a regional theater performance. 
Um, there's a guy okay. we see earlier sing about Bigfoot in a bar, and he seems very authentic and natural. And then later he comes back to warn them away and take Bigfoot seriously. Yeah. And he seems fake and wooden. Okay. So, like, it, it definitely starts from a distanced perspective and then, like, starts weaving them into the narrative the closer they get to going camping. Um, once they get out there and the Bigfoot is attacking them, it is very much Blair Witch 101 yeah. found footage filmmaking. And it stops being, I think, as interesting as the early go. Um, the one big stunt in the movie is this 20 minute long shot where they're in a tent listening <laughs> to Sasquatch sounds in that, that's the woods. A great, it's a great scene. And it's like a significant chunk of the runtime. But it's a great exercise. And like, again, we're, we're talking about slow cinema in previous episodes and like the elongation of time, like mm-hmm. five minutes in, you're like, I'm on the edge of my seat. Like, Oh my God, I can hear the things outside the tent. And then 10 minutes in, you're kind of like bored. You're like, Oh my God, like, come on, can we move on uh-huh. to the next scene? And then like 15 minutes in, it like breaks through to some transcendent thing. where like, you're like, like now I'm even more on edge. I was actually scared towards the end of that yeah. sequence. No, that's what I'm saying. It's <laughs> yeah. like the noises like, were the scariest part you're of like, this movie. You're tense, then you're bored, then you're even more tense, and then, you know, I don't think it really pays off that well, that scene. Uh it reminded me of a very recent experience I had in the woods where we went to oh. um a friend's camp in Mississippi on the river, and we were the only mm-hmm. two people out there. And there was one night there was supposed to be a meteor shower. We went out to like watch a few meteors in the sky. And after about five minutes, we heard a rifle shot. This is in the like pitch black in the middle of the yeah. night, no lights on. And then the rifle shots kept getting closer and closer <gasps> to us. I would have had diarrhea all over. And we like <laughs> ran back inside and like shut off all the lights. Like yeah. I actually got spooked yeah. out there. Uh. So I don't know. That scene actually like worked for me and yeah. felt like actual stages of fear where you keep rationalizing like, oh, that was probably an owl or that was probably this or that. Uh-huh. And it keeps pushing you past your like rationalizations where it's like, I don't know what the fuck that is. And right. it's scary. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, it's been five minutes and I haven't heard it. Maybe it didn't even happen. Right. And then like you hear it again seven minutes later and it restarts this cycle of fear. That's the part of the movie that sold me on like enjoying it. Because yeah. the beginning I was kind of like, I hate the two people. They were so obnoxious. And I'm like, I just want Bigfoot to get them. So they can get off the screen. <laughs> and like when I was in the tent with them, I was like, God dang it. Um, but then like when it got like really, really freaky, like towards the end after we're sitting there listening to all this shit, I was like, oh my God, this is kind of, whew. I like this And then movie. I was sold. And I have two like preloaded defenses of, I think the things that people would most hate about it. Oh. I actually, and I like the couple too. I like okay. I like both of the actors. They're not as bad like, as they could have been. Yeah. I sympathize with both of them. And the the uh, girlfriend was in um, World's Greatest Dad, too, I think, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. She was the girlfriend in yeah. that, too. That relationship she... made much less sense than this one. <laughs> yeah. This one made sense. Right. I think she did a great job. And I thought they did a great job portraying a relationship that is like kind of working and kind of not working. It's like you can travel together, but there are these like deep simmering issues that you have not worked through. And you would think that's what Bobcat would do is like really dig into the discomfort of their relationship failing. Cause like there's so many reasons they probably can't be together long term. Right. And that culminates in 
the man proposing when they're in the tent before the Eddie sounds oh start. God. And you're like, what oh, a terrible idea. Horrible. <laughs> you should not get married. Right. And then he backs down. It's like Bobcat could have pushed and made that really excruciating and had their big confrontation with the Yeti be like catharsis for this like shitty failing relationship. Mm-hmm. But instead the guy sort of like walks back all of the things he's done wrong where he's like, I'll move to LA to move in right. with you. I'm not going to like crush your dreams just to like have bigoted opinions about West Coast people or whatever. Right. Sasquatch's healing relationships. <laughs> well, they don't make it out alive. I'm willing right. to spoil that because it's a found footage well, movie and they all end in the I same don't way. I think Bigfoot is violent. Like, I think it's more shy. I think that she survives. Interesting. Yeah. I think that, well, I don't know. Can we talk about the ending? We don't I mean, the movie's been out for people. 10 years, you know. Yeah, because it. in the beginning, they're looking at this missing person report and they see this photo of a woman. And I think that is the woman. They they find a woman in the, the woods and woman, it's that yeah. woman. So I think that they're keeping the women alive and like procreating. But Weird. That, yeah, that's that sounds like Bobcat Goldthwait. Yeah. <laughs> because and she kept making comments in the beginning of like, oh, like I bet Bigfoot's dick is huge and like making comments like i don't know i just that was kind of in my mind as the movie was going along so then seeing the woman at the very end i mean i could be totally wrong but i think they carried her off that sounds more in line with what i'm used to this guy making in his movies and i mean maybe that was an original idea that they paired back and didn't make explicit yeah but yeah that's definitely in the air in the film yeah you're right because at the end like she's screaming after like i mean he dies pretty quickly yeah like almost yeah and then she's like screaming and kind of her screaming doesn't i don't think it ends i could be wrong but they definitely kept that other woman alive. could you imagine i mean i thought it was like pretty scary towards like just being lost in the like you've been hiking and you know you get like off the trail and you're kind of like lost you walk three hours and see the same tree you saw three hours ago that's fucking scary shit and like I don't know. This movie did a really good job of capturing that. I have two defenses for, I think, it's two main sticking points with people. Uh-huh. Okay, the main one for most audiences to be like, I don't see a damn Bigfoot in this movie. I We're, did have that complaint. I agree yeah. with that. I agree with <laughs> I that. Did. That is a legitimate... You show me a big footprint, I want to see it. That did piss me off. <laughs> it's I'm like, it's come frustrating. On, you didn't show me a big But foot. I think come it's... On. Well, we, we really don't still don't know what Bigfoot looks like. Well, that's my thinking is like... <laughs> Everyone worships this one instance of the footage being captured, right? Right. And in the decades since, the argument about that footage being fake is like, why has it never been repeated? Why has no one ever found like a Bigfoot body? Where's the evidence? You know, if it's out there. The government's hiding it. Talk about the leader. (laughs) My thinking is like, this movie actually shows you why that would be impossible to film. Because they're scared shitless. (laughs) And every time they... (laughs) are confronted with the monster in that final run away from it uh-huh. um the footage gets super shaky and it's like uh they he could stop to film and show what's chasing them but in the moment but he's like just scared for his life and running yeah, away it's fight or flight not um, fight or film oh, god damn it brandon <laughs> i mean does no, that make it a no, satisfying just, movie maybe not, not but, but it's, it's a not good a satis- this is not a satisfying movie to me I think it's satisfying in that I don't think it's necessarily about Bigfoot as like its main source of terror. And I guess this is my second defense of it. Okay. Is that 
yes, this is very much a Blair Witch knockoff and follows the trajectory of Blair Witch, where, like, even in that one, you don't see Blair Witch. And, like, the scary image at the end is someone staring at a corner. And a lot of people who hate that movie complain about it not actually showing you anything. And it's more about the, like, terror it evokes in you than it is about, you know, showing you a witch killing people. But I think as much as it follows that template, it actually feels very ahead of its time in a different way. Where, like, in 2013, the sort of YouTube influencer, Mm -hmm. like, lifestyle profession is not a fully formed concept yet. But if you watch this after seeing something like Deadstream, Mm. um, which is, like, the sort of modern version of this, the real terror in the movie is not the Bigfoot chasing them. It's, like, the compulsion to turn everything into content and like every single thing they do, he keeps filming and keeps insisting on capturing on camera to the point where she's very frustrated. Like we need to stop hiking for the day and like set up camp and like function. Um, Cause you know, we're out in the wilderness. We actually like need to take care of ourselves. If we're going to survive this. <laughs> yeah. And then later, once they're actually being chased by Yetis or Sasquatches or whatever, he continues to do it. And she's like, we are about to get murdered <laughs> in the woods. You need to stop. And there's like something sick and upsetting about the compulsion to keep filming himself and keep turning these little moments into content yeah. as they're being chased to their doom. And I actually found that very upsetting and terrifying and reminded me a lot of like what the um, Blair Witch model has turned into in like the more recent like post unfriended post Deadstream kind of era. I don't know. I feel, I feel like the movie's kind of ahead of its time in, in like influencer brain mm. rot kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, I didn't even pick up on that until you said it, but you're totally right. Also because that impulse drives you to do things that you are ill-equipped to do. Right. Yeah. Like, you, if you go in the woods, you have to bring a compass at least, you know? But it's like he is not thinking in terms of survival. It's like this... Um, goal of finding the the site where these people got famous, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like he forgot the survival basics and was just so like, yeah, hyper focused. Yeah, I'm gonna get a photo, but hey, what happens if I don't and I rot here? Right. But the movie does pull punches. It's not really shitting on them as much as it could. Like, it's not really like eviscerating their personalities. You mm-hmm. kind of like these people, even though they are compulsively filming themselves and a little narcissistic and i didn't like them until they started like almost dying (laughs) (laughs) and i was like okay i like them (laughs) and then um it also pulls punches in the like sort of quirky bigfoot economy before then and i mean hana brought up some very like troubling implications of what the final (laughs) scene might have meant that i didn't even consider and like it could have made that explicit in a way that like would have left you with a really sour gut punch Mm -hmm. so yeah not what i expect from this director but i don't know that I would change much about it, to be honest. I think it's an interesting personal movie. Maybe me bringing it up in the same breath as Hour of the Wolf and Near Dark <laughs> and uh, Peeping Tom is an but insult. But also, I think Outwaters. Yeah. Like, I put it in that kind of frame. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people are frustrated by that movie, too, because it's so slow and it's build up to the catharsis at the end. That one actually does show you some freaky shit if you stick with it, though. <laughs> that yeah. movie's very upsetting. It's yeah, I think I wish this was more Outwaters, like a little more freaky shit at yeah. the end. The payoff wasn't quite there. But the, the payoff, I think, is supposed to be that slow cinema moment in the tent. Uh, yes, so which, which is pretty intense. I just like am really tripped out by big things. So like I love whales. Uh, the idea of being in the middle of the ocean and there's a big whale is like 
freaks me out and and I love it. So if you sh- again, if you show me a big footprint, I just want to see I want to feel Something. like a teeny tiny little itty bitty True. ant next to a big thing. So I agree that thematically there is rationale for not showing Bigfoot, but I Yeah. You know? I mean, it's way more satisfying to be yeah. given the thing you want. <laughs> yeah. It's the sinking feeling of being like, I am so insignificant and I'm about to be crushed by a big hand. Gotta give Hannah the damn cryptid. Give it to me. <laughs> Maybe you should double feature this with the beast. Get more creature uh, <laughs> right. action than go. you could ever want. Now that movie had completion. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's true. If anything. So many climaxes. <laughs> way more than necessary. <laughs> Uh, I guess what I was looking for out of this was like a director sort of stepping down into the filth among the people. Mm-hmm. And I think Peeping Tom is like the pristine yeah. example of that among all these movies. That was a masterpiece. Film. If anything, Bobcat might have classed up his act a little bit, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is not necessarily what we wanted. <laughs> yeah, it was. I really thought, liked that movie much more than I thought I would. They were all good movies. Yeah. And the horror film marathon will go on all yes. October. Uh, we will be talking about The Exorcist 3 next episode, which is my personal favorite Exorcist film. Uh, I don't know if the rest of the Lanyap crew will agree, but we'll find out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in the meantime, if you want recommendations for horror movies, I am going to link our list of currently streaming horror films that we've all enjoyed in the, over the past year. Maybe not all enjoyed, but individually. <laughs> I, I never really like passed that around for consensus. Y'all are very hard to wrangle, to be honest. <laughs> We're little cats. But yeah. there's some uh, recommendations from each person, I think, on that list. I don't think there's anything I really dislike. Oh, good. To be honest. Yeah. So, yeah. I thought you and Boomer might have disagreed on there's something wrong with the children, because he seemed to like that more than you did. I had, I had fun with it. I just oh, okay. didn't think it was like worth telling somebody to watch. <laughs> oh, shit. The Swamp Flicks style of disagreement. <laughs> But I get it. You ever get hung up on the idea that like we're selecting movies that we want to watch, so like you're more inclined to enjoy most of them. So like I feel like all we're really doing most of the time is differentiating between three to five stars, which is like the like right end of the rating spectrum. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we're gonna have to have an episode where we make ourselves watch shit that we fucking don't want to (laughs) watch. That sounds not fun, but (laughs) and then we have to do it. If we want to be a true film podcast, <laughs> no. we have to torture ourselves. Sometimes I look at my like rating distribution. I'm like, hmm, these are all four stars. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I really sweat over like, is we this a three-star right. movie three or a three and a half? And a half. Hmm. Who gives a shit? <laughs> it's the half star, though. Yeah. yeah. I go back sometimes and I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the real way to do it is we need to start getting paid to review stuff and people just send you lots of things and you'll hate most of it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really- this. Yeah, exactly. Covered in hair